Welcome to the A Better Way to Farm podcast, where we share serious secrets about profitable farming. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, and we hope that you'll love the knowledge we share not only with you today, but also in future episodes. So let's get right into it. Hello guys, Kayla Livesey here with A Better Way to Farm. I am super excited about the content we have planned out for today. I hope this episode finds you doing well and you are able to get a lot out of what we have planned because I'm super excited about it. Rod Livesey will be our interviewer today. He is really excited about what we have going on. Our guest is a native Illinoisan with a longstanding interest in soil science and agronomy. He has been a faculty member at UIUC since 1983. There he teaches introductory soils and two courses in soil fertility. He has been active in research concerning in transformations in soils, the long-term environmental effects of infertilization, and the use of soil testing to optimize fertilizer and management. Today, it is my honor to bring both Rod Levesey and Dr. Richard Mulvaney to the podcast. Dr. Mulvaney, how are you today? I'm doing just fine. It's good to be with you, Kayla. Appreciate the opportunity. Yes, and we're so glad to have you back again. Rod, would you like to give an overview of what we're going to talk about today? I would, and I'm super excited to be doing this. As you guys know, one of our credos here is everything that happens in ag is good for somebody. The question is who? And today we're going to talk about what's good for you, the listener. For you guys out there who are farming, this is truly for you. I could not be more stoked about getting to do this. And Dr. Mulvaney, I just want to say thank you. I know your schedule is busy. Thanks so much for taking your time and joining us. Uh, Very glad to do it and forward to the discussion. Well, let's dive right in here because I know as I I read your bios and I look at what you do, your passion in agriculture is obviously nitrogen. Talk to us a little bit about how that developed. It developed through the course of my graduate work. I started that phase of my education when I went over to Iowa State in the mid-70s to work with a world-famous soil biochemist by the name of Jack Bremner, and his specialty was nitrogen. (laughs) And it became my specialty as well. It's a fascinating part of soil fertility because it's such a dynamic nutrient and such an important one. I continue to learn more about it, its transformations, behavior, and how we can manage it better. I'm glad to share that with you guys. Well, that's awesome. So let's dive right in here and let's just talk about, well, let me back up. Over the course of our career, 28 years, We started back when most places that sold nutrients had a deal that hung on the wall that said for every bushel of corn you want, you need 1.2 pounds of nitrogen. Were you involved in that recommendation, and how did that recommendation become so well accepted? Oh, my. You've opened a deep hole with this one. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I I can thankfully say I was not in any way involved in bringing that recommendation into use. But I would add that my own earthly father, Darrell Mulvaney, who worked for the university throughout his career, he was an area agronomist in northern Illinois, and he had some involvement in the trials that led to that recommendation going back into the late 60s. And that's where those trials were done, in the late 60s. The 1.2 recommendation came out in the agronomy handbook beginning in 1975. That marked the debut. And to be honest, it took me literally decades to figure out something didn't make sense here. (laughs) At the time, I didn't know any better. 
but it makes no sense at all. And now I can explain why to my students. The first problem with that recommendation was in how the yield trials were done that it's based on. And this brings up the issue of something called static plots. <laughs> I didn't understand those back in the early days, but I do now. Static plots are what the moral plots are, so that you have an area of land that you set out plots on. This is done in multiple years, and every year the same treatment is applied to the same spot of ground. It doesn't rotate. It's always the same. The unfertilized area this year was the unfertilized area last year and the year before, and likewise with the other treatments. That is a critical issue, and especially with nitrogen, because it means that the unfertilized or check plot treatment is going to get depleted. Now, it's going to get depleted as we continue to grow crops and remove yield, and that yield contains nutrients, including nitrogen. But in the case of nitrogen, there's one other issue that becomes really important, and that is that we return the residues, but we don't put any supplemental nitrogen on that soil. And so the microbes, when they break down the residues, they tie up the plant-available nitrogen and they depress the check plot yield. That's real important. And so what happens? It makes the fertilizer look better. <laughs> That's exactly what it will do. So it increases the difference in yield between the fertilized and the unfertilized treatment. And that is exactly what was done in the yield response trials that led to the 1.2 system. It overestimated the value of the fertilizer and it underestimated the value of the soil. Interesting. I mean, we talk about in our meetings, we talk about the carbon to nitrogen to sulfur ratio, which we believe to be 100 parts carbon to 10 parts nitrogen to one part sulfur. And then in the event that that isn't in existence, then something is going to be suffering within that plant. So is what you're saying, the carbon was too high and the nitrogen was too low in the ratio? Yeah. So on the check plot, the unfertilized treatment, the nitrogen was deficient because the microbes tied up all the nitrogen they could get coming from the soil as they decomposed last year's residues. And that depressed the end supply to the next crop. Awesome. That's like my head's just turning. I'm like a kid on Christmas morning here, just so you know. I've got five pages of questions. I'm trying to figure out where I want, which one to go with. And I w I'm going to get so, to your test where you're actually variable rating nitrogen, but we're going to save that towards the end, okay? So, Rod, let me add a little bit more on this same, same aspect here. And that is that in the 1.2 method, it turns out that there's an assumption being made there. And it took years for us to get to this point. The assumption is that two-thirds of the nitrogen in the corn crop comes from fertilizer and one-third is from the soil. That's the assumption it's based on. And I'm telling you, that thing is upside down, and it's upside down because of that static plot design that depleted the check plot and lowered the yield. So it's, it's actually backwards, and that assumption was applied to every soil. This is a one-size-fits-all system. So I like to talk about this with my students and say, hey, do you think that would be 
the case for both drummer Sildy Clay Loam and Bloomfield Sand? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, and and we that's uh, that's a very common error that we see. Somebody comes up with an idea for a new product and it works really good in one place or they, they're very successful growing corn in one geographic area, and they become what a self-proclaimed expert. I literally had a guy tell me the other day he was a genius. And i got to be honest, I, he was the first genius I'd ever met. But nonetheless, uh, <laughs> he, they think that, you know, because it worked right here, I'm going to go tell everybody to do this. And we are really geographically diverse, and I've made some real big mistakes thinking that because it worked here in Iowa, it would work in Wyoming. And, man, that's not true. Uh-huh. And so we have a friend who works with us up in the Dakotas, and he's growing 285 bushel of corn on 0.3 pounds per bushel of applied in. Uh-huh. So you would say he's headed the direction that you think we should all go. Yeah. So, so again, it comes down to understanding the power of the soil. And it was grossly underestimated by the 1.2 system. And by the way, that 1.2 system works pretty well for a Bloomfield sand where there's not much in the way of end supplying power, but it fails miserably for a drummer. <laughs> exactly. We, our goal with our growers that we start with is to immediately move to a 0.6 or 0.7. And I think you're going to be able to help us to do far better with that. I got a couple of just base questions that guys sent in. They They knew we were doing this and they, they lit us up. And I, I mean, when they heard you were talking, I literally got 10 pages of, of questions, and we won't do them all, but I want to start with one from Michael. And he just said, what's your opinion of broadcasting nitrogen versus dribbling it with a planter? Okay, if we're talking about something like UAN, uh, yes. 28 or 32, yeah. um, if it's broadcast and worked in, that can actually be a better approach. The dribble approach with the planter may not – give a whole lot of response. We've done some, we've been, in fact, we're actually doing some fertilizer placement studies. We did again this past growing season and, and will again next year. There are some differences showing up and the dribble approach doesn't look all that promising to me. And I might mention we're doing these studies with isotopically labeled fertilizer with N15 so we can look at the actual uptake of the fertilizer in by the plant. We know it's fertilizer in. And right. so there are differences. Broadcasting actually worked pretty well in one or two trials. But, of course, you have to be careful with UAN that you don't leave it sitting on the soil surface and get volatilization losses. Right. So that being said, as a follow-up question to that, how would you feel about maybe, because we have a lot of the guys who are using a coulter and they're applying in a 4 by 4 band, and that may be their total nitrogen program. How do you feel about that? We have a culture treatment in these uh, placement studies I mentioned, and it's looked reasonably good. It depends on the soil and the weather conditions, of course. But, yes, I would tend to think culture is better than a surface broadcast. And then we've also looked at Y-drops, and that's you know a big issue these days. And I don't have the final results. We still have a, a year of data to look at. But the Y-drops have shown promise in some cases and on some soils. There's different options. I can't give you a magic bullet prescription here, but I would tend to say coulters make sense to me 
as long as you do them in a way that minimizes root pruning. Exactly. That's an important issue, too. Correct, correct. I And, and nitrogen is probably, it magnifies this whole one-size-fits-all. I just, I don't even think that we can do our nitrogen the same on all of the fields that we farm, let alone every farmer in America do the same thing. Yeah, you know? yeah that, that may very well be the case, yes. I, you know, for instance, I love the idea of a side dress, a later side dress, but where I grew up, I was 21 years old before I realized there were square fields that didn't have point rows. Where I'm at, yes. you don't want to do a lot of side dressing, and you sure don't want to make two trips because you mash down so much yes. corn. Yes, absolutely. You know, if I've got big fields, 160s or 320s, and it's all square, different story. Yeah, your points are very well taken. And another point to uh, that I might make there in regard to the timing and side dressing versus maybe spring application is the need to show the plant that it's going to have a good supply of N to build its yield. And that relates to early growth. And there was work, for example, in Nebraska showing the importance of the plant setting its yield potential with adequate N supply. And so that argues toward the idea that adding some N, maybe a starter or as a spring application, can help to set that high yield goal. Side dressing is, is going to be after the plant has set has reached that point, and it might not be as effective for that reason. But I, I am a believer in side dressing. It makes all kinds of sense for minimizing end losses and for spoon-feeding the plant while it's actually there. Um, we tend to push our guys towards some kind of early application, you know, 50 pounds weed and feed early, uh, yes. with something to cut down. We have something actually in our pocketbook that people can use that cuts down on volatilization. Yes. And so we like yep. that. And then to come back later with some kind of later season in, in a perfect world. Now, my guys have the point rows or the hills or the terraces, and yes. we got to figure out how to put that in on up front and stabilize it. So, yes. you know, that's that's our, our take on that, and I think we're right in line with you. Yeah, it makes very good sense to me. Mm-hmm. Is there a correlation between tissue tests and nitrogen content and what's available in the soil from organic matter and applied nitrogen? Well, the tissues are going to reflect N availability into the plant. And so, yes, there'll be a relationship. Is it a relationship that can guide fertilizer application? That's a different question, and I'm not convinced it is. Um, Okay. I think it makes more sense to monitor the supply side which would be the soil. That is actually what led us toward the idea of soil end testing. But actually, I, it was another case where I had to overcome my training. <laughs> <laughs> We're oh, back to unlearning, so. and unlearning is hard. Right, because <laughs> I had worked with with some big names. I mentioned Jack Bremner. Uh, he was one of them. And the message was, in their writings, <laughs> that there is no single fraction of soil organic nitrogen that supplies plant available in. That there isn't any one that is more important than the others. <laughs> and so I believe soil end <laughs> testing from the organic phase, not nitrate testing, but organic end testing for mineralization, I thought that was absolutely impossible. I didn't believe it could ever be done. <laughs> well, Said and I had to learn that it could be actually was my my late wife who who made the point that should have been made much earlier 
she too had been a student of Jack Bremner's. She said, you know, it's so interesting. You soils people, you have this view that all the carbon in plant residues is different. It decomposes at a different rate, and it's just different. The microbes know it's different, and they, they act accordingly. But when it comes to nitrogen, you say it's all the same. <laughs> it's all the same. And it's not all the same. And Said and I were able to discover that in the course of work we did some 20 years ago that led to the Illinois soil end test. There's a fraction called amino sugar N that emerged as the most useful fraction of organic N that we could test for. Awesome. And we're going to get to that here in a little bit because I'm, I'm very excited about that. What is your, uh, I'll take a side trip here. We believe there to be a correlation between CEC and how much we can put on in a single shot and not really accelerate loss. What is your opinion of that? If you're talking about an ammoniacal source like UAN, yes, CEC is going to be important because the urea that is a part of that mixture is going to break down or hydrolyze, and as it does that, it's going to raise the pH. That CEC becomes important for binding the ammonium released from hydrolysis and also for moderating the rise in pH through buffering. For example, we've done small-scale lab studies with sandy soils like Bloomfield, and you can lose a huge amount of ammonia from those soils when they're fertilized with urea or UAN because they don't have any buffering and no CEC. So yes, CEC is important for holding the N applied in the form of urea or anhydrous ammonia, yes. Interesting. All right. So let's talk about, I know what everybody really wants to get to here is the whole idea of your, your soil test with, for the amino sugars. How was that developed? What have you learned from it? Okay. It does have a little history to it. And I, I already told you that I had to overcome my unbelief. But before that, we had actually gained access to a resource that was very valuable. Howard Brown at Growmark, uh, he's now a, a big wig at Growmark, uh, he was doing a PhD with Bob Haft in the 1990s, early 90s. And the project, <laughs> oh, how little I understood at the time. The project was focused on evaluating soil nitrate testing as had come into vogue in places like Iowa with Fred Blackmer's work. And it was being looked at in Illinois. And, and so they were going to evaluate how well nitrate testing would work to improve fertilizer end recommendations or if the 1.2 method was good enough. That's what it was. And that work was done on many on-farm grower sites, mostly in central and northern Illinois, but some in southern. And we gained access to the soil samples from those trials. That's where it all started. And by the way, the, the yield results from those trials brought a most unexpected finding, at least to some quarters. And that was that there were roughly a third of the 75 on-farm trials that showed no statistically significant response to fertilizer N. <laughs> wow. 
and, and that was quite a, a wake-up call at the time. What's going on here? Is there something wrong with these soils? What's happening? And and now I understand perfectly, well, no, nothing was wrong. It was just that static plot <laughs> design that had been used to build the 1.2 method. Farmer's field is not static plots. There's no unfertilized area that stays in place every year. It doesn't work that way. It, <laughs> it all gets the same management, and it grows crops every year. There's no static plot. And exactly. so when they took the 1.2 method to the farm field, it failed miserably. It was predicting over-fertilization because of that assumption that two-thirds of the end came from the fertilizer. Okay? <laughs> yeah, the soil was giving much more in than they bargained for. And the, the thing didn't work, but it didn't turn out that way in Howard's thesis. Regardless, we got custody of the soil samples, and Said and I had to actually get in the lab and begin to do this work ourselves. And nothing could have been better for us. You know, <laughs> I might make a minor comment here that these days the standard approach to research seems to be to get a graduate student with little or no experience, send them to the lab or the field while the professor stays in the office writing grants. That's not the way I work. Uh, I believe in getting involved in the work. So that's what Said and I did. And first thing we learned was that the classic methods for fractionating soil organic in didn't work. <laughs> they didn't work. They weren't quantitative. We spent a year rebuilding those methods, and lo and behold, we began to see a pattern with the soil samples in Howard Brown's thesis work. So that the soils where there had been no response to fertilizer in, they tested higher for this amino sugar fraction, and the soils where there was a response tested lower. That's what we found. That was the beginning. <laughs> okay. So that being said, so now tell us how you are applying that. Well, the test has met with uh, some pretty stiff resistance at times, as you might suppose, because it wasn't too long after it was developed. Uh, we published that paper in 2001, and more trials were done between 2001 and 2003, with the next paper coming out in 2005 or 6. Well, you might not be too surprised here that the test began to generate some, or to experience some resistance from the fertilizer industry. Because the, That's shocking. The, there was an implication that farmers could cut back their end rates, and there were, I mean, there was even growing evidence that there were soils that were non-responsive entirely. Oh, my. So, oh, boy, this is crisis time. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and we lost our funding for that work through the checkoff funds because of that very issue. We were cutting back end rates. And so the corn checkoff was actually what was funding this and the very people that would have been helped cut your funding? The fertilizer checkoff was providing oh, the, the funds. Oh, the fertilizer checkoff. Okay. ISNT. All right. Yes. And who do you suppose sits on the board 
of the fertilizer checkoff program. The fertilizer uh, wraps. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So, so you're saying, and if I understand this correctly, the work that you're doing has guys variable rating nitrogen going across the field based on your amino sugars test. Yes, that is being done by various private testing firms. I might mention one of those, not not to be an advertisement, but just to let you know uh, that there's one commercial firm that does this routinely, and that would be CropSmith in Farmer City. Tim Smith is the uh, head guy over there. And we work with Tim and his crew on research, and they are great collaborators. And they run the ISNT for doing variable rate N. And another guy who does this widely is Ken Ferry at the Farm Journal. So we're getting some traction here on people following up with this and actually doing yes. it. Talk to and, us about the rates that you might see. It just a, a typical Illinois soil there, McLean County, somewhere in that over there by you, uh, around Champaign. Uh -huh. uh, what kind of variance do you see as you go through a, a half mile long row on 160 acres? So yes, it is. It certainly is going to vary, but optimum end rates in the database that we compiled as we were developing and evaluating the ISNT, the average optimum N was under a hundred pounds per acre. For for Whoa. all the, there were 102 sites for all those locations. So that's an average, but there are sites that can be much lower than that. So a typical range in end rates might go from maybe 80, uh, and then in more responsive areas that need more help, it can go well up into the 150s, 180s, even over 200. So yes, there are variations, and nitrogen does need to be managed site-specifically. Yes. Interesting. What size grids are you recommending that they do for this? Well, the smaller the better. But, you know, in reality given the constraints of commercial testing, a grid size of, you know, maybe a two and a half acre grid is probably on the optimistic side these days. For me, I'd like to get closer to one acre, but is it going to be feasible commercially? I don't know. You know, the, the testers have to make a profit and I don't know if that's going to work, but two and a half is common. And some guys are doing three-and-a-half-acre grids, which I think is mighty coarse. Yep, yep. So what time of year does this particular test have to be ran in order to be effective? Um, ideally, well, it was developed based on samples collected in early spring. We're talking March, early April, before planting. Okay, okay. It can be done, I believe, and we've done a little bit of work on this, but not as much as we need. I think fall sampling can be successful, and some guys have tried to do it in season. I don't know about that. It was never developed for that purpose, but I think spring is probably the best choice, and fall would be second. And okay. uh, the two times will give different values, and spring values tend to be higher than fall because I think there's a microbial recharge that happens over the off-season when there's no crop competition for in-uptake. That would make total sense. So that being said, do you feel like adding any kind of a sugar source to your nitrogen would help this conversion process? Okay, so the idea of sugar or molasses or whatever, 
expediting the breakdown of crop residues does get used and and it it's another controversial practice but it makes sense to me that it could work the sugar is going to stimulate microbial growth and activity and that's going to lead to the buildup of microbial nitrogen constituents like amino sugars they occur in the cell walls sugar should have an effect will it pay off i i can't answer that i don't know we um, need more work there we need more work so yeah so how does a plant use amino sugars versus other forms of nitrogen within that plant okay so the plant itself really doesn't make much in the way of amino sugars there is a little bit of composition there but not much the main issue is that the amino sugars are subject to microbial attack and breakdown as the microbes go through their generations and turnover. And that nitrogen that was tied up in the amino sugar fraction gets released as mineral N that becomes available for crop uptake. So that's the benefit to the crop from having this fraction in the soil. It gains mineralization and a supply of available N. And by the way, when I say amino sugars, that term is kind of general. More descriptive term of the fraction we're testing for would be alkali hydrolyzable organic N. I know that's big and complex, but <laughs> the reason I make the distinction is that amino sugars include things like chitin in insect exoskeletons and fungal material. And that chitin is very stable. I don't believe that's a source of plant available in, but it's the amino sugars in the cell walls and some of the amino acids like uh, glutamine or asparagine, for example, they can be subject to more rapid mineralization and breakdown. And that's the fraction we target. Okay. So that's what we're after there. So how do we build this amino sugar level in the soil? What is it that we can do to make that better? Again, it ties back to soil biology. So we need more microbial activity to make conditions better for them. And there are many factors that interact with that. If you want a quick fix and a way to increase that amino sugar level, my advice would be manuring. <laughs> manuring can build it faster than anything else. Otherwise, this fraction is relatively stable. It's not like nitrate. It's in the organic fraction. So you can build it if you improve conditions for the microbes to be active and grow. And that impacts all kinds of soil properties, even including things like aggregate stability for better aeration and drainage. Okay? So all wow. those things come into play. Yes, sure. it's a complex issue here. But you want to make life better for the microbes. That's how you're going to build that. Fantastic. So you're saying, so let's go through here and talk about, I'm going to put nitrogen on. What would you, your first choice would be for me to use manure, correct? Yeah, if I had access to manure, I would say that's the best source, yes. Now, bear in mind, it, go ahead. I'm just going to add here, Rod, that different types of manure are a different matter, of course, as you know. But okay. Liquid hog manure is not the same as, for example, farmyard manure with bedding straw. The farmyard manure would be great. Liquid hog manure is more like a mineral fertilizer. Okay. So you would prefer something from a cattle feedlot, a dairy operation yes. that was Correct. bedding, you would prefer chicken litter? 
Correct. Okay. And then you would get into your liquids as you're moving down the scale, so to speak. Then yes. let's talk about, we take those off. Now we're going to talk about UAN versus ammonium nitrate or urea versus anhydrous. Yeah, that's an important area too. And, and it's actually one that we are currently working on. What I tell my students based on what I have learned from the literature and other things is that the ammoniacal sources like anhydrous or urea would be the worst choices. <laughs> so I know you're not a fan of anhydrous, so that may not be too hard for you to accept. <laughs> and they're the worst because they're a pure shot of ammonium. And, and I need to make a point here that ammonium is just what the microbes would like. So maybe this sounds like a contradiction to the point that I made earlier that we need to make life better for the microbes. But here it's not true. We don't want to be fertilizing the microbes. We want to be fertilizing the crop. And the microbes love nothing better than to get access to ammonium and organic carbon from residues. They are happy campers. And they're going to take up that ammonium as they break down the carbon. So ammonium is one thing, but nitrate is another. For nitrate, the plant has the advantage over the microbe. It takes it up better. Among the sources you just mentioned, I would think something with ammonium nitrate would be a better choice, a UAN mixture, as opposed to straight ammonium with anhydrous or urea. But what we're doing, and we had the first year's trials in 2020, was to take a look at a pure nitrate source. And we were using potassium nitrate for that purpose, but I think calcium might be even better. Interesting. So I don't want to keep you forever here. I could. I could talk to you for a long, long time, and I appreciate that. And, and you are correct. I have a, uh, an intense bias against anhydrous, and it goes back to what you said earlier about soil structure what you said in our previous yes. podcast when we were yes. talking about because I believe that using anhydrous makes the potassium much more difficult <laughs> to get out of to extract out of the soil. Yes, and, you're you're absolutely right. And I also believe that using potassium chloride makes it much harder to get nitrogen out of, into the plant. <laughs> so I believe that uh, as a matter of fact I have a cartoon here on my desk. You'll you'll like this. It's a picture of God and the devil talking and the devil says, "God, just let me do just one more thing. Just one more thing, please." And God says, okay, fine. You can have one more thing. And the devil goes, yes, potassium chloride. But anyway, that was, <laughs> so, uh, that was actually sent to me by Dusty Wassenauer. I want to give him a big shout out for that. I, he created that himself, and he deserves credit for it. But, you know, that being said, everything that we do is geared towards better plant health and driving big root. And we are going to steer our guys away from anhydrous. We're going to steer them away from potassium chloride. I did a program here a while back, back when soil health, now we've used regenerative ag a lot, but they were talking about soil health, soil health, soil health everywhere. And one of the farm magazines put a deal on Dr. Mulvaney that said, does your soil need rehab? And I lost my mind because my soil, my soil doesn't need rehab. I need rehab. My soil was just fine. And so rehab implies you've got an addiction and you need help getting off of it. Yes. And so we want to take what we're trying to do here, though, is trying a lot of people are trying to keep their addiction. They still want to do the things that destroyed their soil. Now they're going to try and just put cover crops on and make it a little yes. better. Yes. Well, that seems to me to be kind of silly. I'm okay with the cover crops. That's a great idea. 
but let's stop doing the rehab isn't for the dirt. It's for the grower. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, well, I believe it's time for us to wrap up. Talk to me about what closing thoughts or things you would like to say. Well, I think we have really good opportunities to improve nitrogen management and help farmers boost their profits by factoring in the soil. And the, the means now exist where we can start to do that. And we can variable rate the end, and maybe we can make it even better by optimizing placement and form of N. So I see a lot of possibilities to make things better. It's time to move beyond 1.2. Also, it's something we didn't talk about, the MRTN. Okay. In the interest of time and respect to your time, Dr. Mulvaney, I, I guess we'll wrap this up, but I would like to ask you, would you be willing to come on for a follow-up podcast sometime down the road? I'd like to get a little bit more into the ISNT and the other test that you talked about and some of the results. Does that sound like something you might be able to help us with down the road? Sure, I'd be glad to help uh, when, at a, at a awesome. time that's convenient. Sure. Okay, fantastic. Uh, Kayla, any thoughts as we wrap up here? No, I know that I have thoroughly enjoyed getting to listen to everything, and I'm definitely taking it in and learning as much as I can, and I know that our audience is going to do the same. Exactly. Well, Dr. Mulvaney, I just want to say thank you. It's been such a blessing to have you on with us. We so appreciate your time, and we look forward to talking to you again real soon. I appreciate uh, having these discussions, Rod, and to know that looks like your focus is pretty much the same as mine, and that's very encouraging to know out there in the production sector, people are waking up. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Okay, folks, if you're listening to this podcast and we struck a nerve here, this resonates. Number one, please share it with a friend. We'd like to let someone else have the information that you're getting. Feel free to follow us on Facebook at A Better Way to Farm. And if you need more information or just want to have a discussion, call Kayla or I at 641-919-1206 or send us a text. Hope everybody's having a great day. God bless. Thank you for joining us this week on the A Better Way to Farm podcast. If you found value in this episode, we would appreciate you rating us on iTunes or simply sharing with a friend. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and tune in next time for serious secrets about profitable farming.